welcome to the In Vino Fab podcast. I'm Patrice. And I'm Laura. In Vino Fabulum means in wine story. There are so many tales that need to be told about women from all walks of life in their communities paired with wine, of course. The In Vino Fab pod is a place to learn and space, share stories about our work, interests, passion projects, issues, and random wine facts, of course. Hey, In Vino Fab listeners, Laura here with a quick message to say we recognize we're all going through some weird times right now. The coronavirus has impacted most of us around the world and isolated us or put us into self-quarantine so we could flatten that curve. I want to say that we're here for you right now and we'd love to listen to you and we aren't going to make light, but we do want to still bring stories and voices and uplift you with the conversations we have on this podcast. We hope you enjoy this episode and we do want you to reach out and let us know if you want to have a conversation. If you're stuck at home or you're struggling a bit or you want to just have a chat, we'd love to bring you into the podcast. Please reach out to us so we can chat. On this episode of In Vino Fab, episode 64, we welcome Cordelia. She does assessment in the higher education space, a part-time PhD student. She hopes to research at the intersections of employment and the trans identity. As a trans woman herself, she navigates the world as a digital native, hoping to breathe some authenticity into oversaturated spaces. She is a Sagittarius sun, Gemini moon, and Aquarius rising. And Cordelia is looking for your input on her charts. She really enjoys video games, D&D, and a nice rosé. And I think you'll appreciate the conversation we had today. So enjoy. All right. So welcome to the pod, Cordelia. It's so good to have you. Thank you. Well, we've read your bio, but always I ask my guests, like, is there something else behind the bio we don't know about or a little known secret that uh, you don't often share with others? or They may not even know about you if they ran into you professionally. Um, well, I have, um, was, I did student affairs straight out of undergrad. Uh, I got really passionate about student affairs in undergrad. Uh, I was very much an involved student. Um, and so the passion for our ed runs strong in a very kind of a legacy, um, of experience type of way. Um, Oh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty average. I get ignored on the Metro a lot. So I, I, I live in this amazing world of anonymity that um, I love, actually. So people probably wouldn't even know if they ran into me, which I kind of enjoy. That's great. And for our listeners, um, student affairs and student services are called different things in different countries because we have different uh, friends across the pond. So sometimes it's called student services in Australia. Uh, it's sometimes called random things in the UK. So student affairs is kind of a topic and word. It's also called uh, for I was an academic advisor, so they call them peer tutors. Um, so depending on where they help, they help the students that they may teach a bit, but they're mainly the support staff around the campus that are in so many different roles. And in, what was your kind of internship in student affairs when you were um, going through school or when you first were introduced to it? So my grad program is really um, all about the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had four different internships or assistantships in graduate school. So I kind of ran the gambit. I did activities, conduct, uh, Greek life, and um, I did a summer internship in housing. Cool. So n- never bored. Mm-hmm. Um, like past, uh, I was a residence hall director, and that's how I got introduced to this whole field that I didn't know existed. Uh, I was like, whoa, whoa, this is a job that people actually do on campus. That's not a professor. <laughs> Tell me more. So no, that's really cool. I like when um, graduate programs have applied experiences. That makes so much more sense. So, And speaking of which, you're still in grad school, so you must love learning. Yeah, I just started uh, my 
first year PhD studies this past semester, taking all the good intro fun courses. What are some um, examples of courses in your program? Yeah. So right now I'm doing a ways of knowing course, uh, which is basically kind of about philosophy, kind of discovering your own epistemology, your own ways of knowing how you want to look at the world, how you want to research. Uh, and then we they juxtaposition it with kind of an intro to method. So I'm kind of, it's really cool. I'm pulling stuff from both classes. I'm really learning about um, the, the styles and methods I enjoy doing and stuff I'm not too great on um, all in that first semester, which is super cool. I think that's smart. I did something like that later in my doc program and I could have used it at the front end. So what have you learned about what you like and what are you into in terms of like methods, epistemologies? Explain that big word for our listeners too um, because you'll probably do it better than I am because you're fresh in it. And and then the research methods. And if not, I can look it up while you tell me about what what you learned. My midterm got canceled. I was really looking forward to not having to recite this. Sweet but I'll pop do quiz. My best. Exactly. What's welcome to COVID? Me? I'm giving the COVID <laughs> pop quiz. So, yeah, please. I love that. Um, so my understanding, kind of the way I talk about epistemology, is those um, kind of personal philosophies and the way research is conducted. So, for example, I'm very much about. Um, critical theory. I love looking at the world and thinking about ways it can be better. And for lack of a better word, criticizing, you know, the the standards and, and the systems we live in. Um, I very much love qual. I've, it's so funny, I, um, qualitative research, and I've always loved stories. And so I've, I've always been attracted to that. As I look into like, what am I going to use this big fancy degree for? Um, I've learned that quantitative is probably more practical. Um, so I'm, I'm looking, I've heard different things from different faculty members. So I'm trying to keep it balanced, but there's obviously a preference there. Yeah, I would say you're right. I think of it, epistemology is like your worldview of how you look at the world and how you're going to research and examine it. And this is something, uh, I am a mixed methods person. I think both are really valid and your program is smart for getting you to think about this at the early stages of your doctoral program. You've had some deep <laughs> reflection about self already on, re- on research. I think this is great. I mean, I, I write a reflection a week, so I am all about <laughs> the reflection. I am fully reflect. I'm a reflexive researcher. I'm ready to go, right? Drop terms. Yeah, that's right. Let's drop the lexicon of all your practices and all that. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Praxis. Sexy. I know. We're getting into Most it, folks. Overused word, I feel like, in <laughs> higher education at this moment. Yeah. And coming from a role in higher ed, you are kind of applying what you're doing because you're in an assessment area. Um, so if you could explain a little bit about uh, what you do day to day. So in higher education at our university and colleges, um, we are taking a U.S. probably view at this point. But what do you do in terms of assessment and what that means for your role and your day to day? And what do you look at for your campus at least? So I would say my role is part consultant, part planner. Uh, and part methodologist. Um, so for the consultant part, I meet with different, so I, in my previous, um, in my journey here at my, at my institution, I've uh, changed my role a couple times. So I started out in a shared services role where I was partly divisional and partly uh, housing and residence life. And then recently I moved just into residence life, which is a lot easier to focus. So the consultant role basically has me meeting with different constituencies in the department, whether that's directors, frontline community or hall directors, 
um, to upper level administrators within the department uh, and helping them solve their goals, uh, helping them set goals smartly, um, helping them think about metrics and those goals, and then think about mapping those upwards towards divisional and institutional metrics and, and standards. Um, the methodologist role is really about making sure our surveys are tight, making sure we're not asking silly questions, um, being the gateway so we don't overuse our students and our constituencies for surveys. Survey fatigue is at a place where I've never seen it in my seven years. So I can imagine what it was like before. That proliferation of technology that just booms into, oh, let's just, oh, it's a quick five questions, sorry, we'll just send it out. Um, so a lot of saying like, no surveys, please no. do a focus group. And then they're all like doing 20 focus groups and you're like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so what you're really saying is you want to match your methodologies to the strategy and the vision and your goals. I think that's really critical. And it's really important that we're doing that with research. Are we meeting the needs for, in your case, the students that you want to reach in residence life? Um, that's really great. Are there things that you've learned um, in practice now that you are actually doing kind of the research applied is really what your role is, which is kind of cool. Um, are, you, are there things that you're learning that are new or you're hoping to, I guess, improve upon for your students now that you're kind of in the in the data deep i'm excited so next semester i really get into some more of like the actual kind of methods and statistics and kind of um actual analysis work which i'm not super big on i can punch stuff into excel and i'm a great pivot a pivot table master um, but when it comes into like ANOVA and some of those higher level statistical things just not my standard so um, we do these at, at my institution, we do these very large connected surveys. So we have a freshman or um, first year student kind of um, early warning kind of situation where there are different measures around food insecurity or academic success, those types of things. And then um, we have our survey and then we have another a needs survey. So they're all kind of interconnected using similar metrics. Um, to my knowledge, none of those have ever been validated. <laughs> in a way that like at a level you know like we're good about like what is that question asking you know but it's never been looked at in a really st statistically significant way in that way so I'm very much looking forward to learning some of those things and being able to apply and say well this is really great but how are we going to think about this longitudinally if we keep this up and really think about validating you know these measures that we're asking yeah and you're asking and you're asking them repetitively each year so you have comparative data and you have comparative mm -hmm. students and then you could see not only if there's like a way that you're identifying those you intervene or kind of get an early detection that they need help. I always find it fascinating when you can get that alignment across the campus because that doesn't always happen. We work in silos in higher ed and in other orgs. So don't think it's just a higher ed thing. Uh, there's silos all over. <laughs> it's true. Silos, I feel like, are a human, are a human personal protection mechanism. It's like my work, it's protected, it can't be influenced. I, was, I know. Yeah. Let's share people. We need to learn how to share. I, I think um, you're at a fun early part. Oh, I wish I was starting my doctoral program. No, I don't. Okay, maybe I do. And you're at a fun point to like to decide kind of where you want to go. And I know um, we're going to talk a little bit about that down the road, but um, what are ways that you're hoping to share, I guess, story in the work that you're doing? Because you have some interesting things going on now in terms of your, what you're assessing and what you're hoping to do at your campus. And we have a bit of time now because um, it is uh, beginning of April and mm -hmm. the start 
of more lockdown for at least America um, during coronavirus. <laughs> what are some ways that you, if, if and when you get the time, let's say right now, that you hope to think about story a little bit more? So one of my big areas of work is thinking about um, measuring the student experience in regards to living learning communities. Um, we have put a very concerted effort into a goal, for example, that says we want every first year student living in a um, an affiliate, an academic or themed affiliated experience. Um, and so for that, I'd really love to talk about what the what those experiences translate to true academic success. So, like, there's GPA, there's retention, which I feel like I may be, like, persecuted professionally, but <laughs> retention is such a garbage metric. It's always been a garbage metric. There's so many things around retention that you can't control for, but yet it's an industry standard. So, here nor there, when any associate or hire being like, who is this person? Um but yeah, so really thinking about what what are those true measures of student success in terms of like, what's the lived experience in terms of student success? What does it look like? Because if we can figure out what it looks like, maybe we can replicate it instead of kind of being excited about, oh, we have 85% retention. We can't re- replicate 85% retention. We can replicate experience. Yeah, I think retention is like in completion on programs or getting them into whatever major is an easiest metric. That's why they reach and grab for that. So I think that's exactly. you're right. I think um, it's really cool. Live learn experiences. If you've not done this or been part of that, I think are really neat because it can be affiliated with um, an academic field or discipline, but it could also be around a philosophy of well-being and like whole, like I was in a wellness and wholeness, well-being living their environment and where I worked in res life. Um, I think there's so many neat ways that people can find affinity groups and explore mm-hmm. themselves more even. Um, I think that's really neat. Um, so what are some like cool or positive experiences you've experienced or seen or uh, know of that you're like, I want to have that. So for example, we have um, a pr- we have an LGBT living learning experience. Uh, it's more identity-based, more affinity group. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got so large because of the community they were creating, it developed into an upper class and a first-year experience because those needs are very different. I feel like when you're experiencing who you are for the first time potentially or whether you're continuing that journey amongst either a chosen family or a peer group. Right. Um, and so some of those experiences that I've got to see, so unfortunately we had a, a student death in those experience in that experience this past year and trying to figure out if these are intentional communities of care, if these are communities, oftentimes the only communities these folks have on a campus, how can we ensure that these are truly, you know, keeping these students safe in that. And so um, that's been kind of my personal kind of project around work I've been trying to work in around kind of the other stuff around kind of divisional compliance and goals and TK20. Um, But yeah, I'm really trying to figure out ways of what, not what went wrong, because obviously it's an experience where you can control for things, but like what can we do to kind of add some stop gaps in there? Um, and I'm sorry to hear about your student. I think it's um, it's unfortunate, but it's also an experience that those students will have and remember. Mm-hmm. And it's not we we always think of them as being positive, but you know what? Sometimes the sad, terrible, awkward things are also experiences that people learn and um, kind of be figure out what's going on. And uh, I don't feel good about it, but we gotta live in those really tough emotions too. So I'm really. I'm really sad about your student, but maybe that community will take it with them and think about how support or care will go on beyond 
um, you know, just the happy times because yeah. it's sometimes shit. Uh, so, yeah. Well, I mean, if college is truly there to help prepare students for the real world, I'm using quotation marks with my hand. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's an important. It uh, is important during the podcast. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Uh, quotation fingers. Um, then they have to understand how to live with, you know, trauma and providing them navigation assistance to those resources because if they go through this later in their own communities once they're out how are they gonna be able to navigate hopefully we're giving them the skills to do so yeah coping mechanisms ways to understand and ways to talk it out i I think it's right that we something we don't always uh put out in the forefront and whether i have a love-hate relationship with social media myself uh how we portray what is a campus environment and uh going on it's not always smiley faces that have been picked from photo stock and put in on campus there's are some tough things that happen and we need some real talks and not just celebration of events or accomplishments or that like there's some shit times that really don't get addressed or get brought about so um i know that you're pretty good to you're openly sharing on a lot of spaces and I met you in person a while back and um, a few years ago now, but you were always talking about your process and how you're doing and how you share and you, you do put yourself out there. And I think you're one of uh, the few professionals that are, I don't, not going to use the A word authentic. I just, (laughs) I just, you're just real. Like, I just think there's like good and bad days that are shared on your um, profiles out there. And I think it's been cool to kind of know who you really are. And um, how did you get to that point? And and thinking about um, who you are and who you've become, how did you get there and become so free and open? Cause it's hard to be real on there. I think it's, You know, I think it's a combination probably of like really um, kind of intense trauma plus realizing that visibility is important. And if you didn't have that visibility growing up and you didn't, who is it going to be? You know, we I feel like we're living in a time of visibility for visibility's sake, you know, very much around... Um, what are my counts? What are my likes? What are my shares? What are, you know, and all these different social media places to do it. Um, I'd rather do that, but not make it an enterprise. It it feels, I hate to use the A word too, but it it feels more authentic when you're just, and there's not a barrier to living your best life and, or sharing your not so best life. So I think for me, it's really just about growing up in an age of, technology and embracing it not being afraid of it um and yeah just kind of living in the kind of proliferation of it you're one of those millennials i love you guys are living, <laughs> your, living your best lives i can learn I'm so an much older millennial so it's okay you'll get good skin so it's fine um i will say one thing and um we if you we've talked about this before we had a conversation before we hit record um some of your visibility is around you and when people mm-hmm. change in life, like let's say you grow up and you find out who you really are, the changes are subtle, but your changes, let's say, are not subtle um, for our audience or listeners uh, who may not have known you for the last few years. Um, so I don't know if you care to share a little bit about that, but you've really taken um, reflecting and introspecting of yourself and then you've 
put it out there and shared your own journey along the way. And I think that's pretty freaking amazing. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that or um, what, what would you like to talk about with, with regard to <laughs> that area of your life? Yeah. I mean, let's just keep the open train going, I guess. Okay. Um, <laughs> to, to all aboard. Um, <laughs> I, I am a trans woman. I uh, started social transition in the summer of 2017 um, medical transition uh, in the um, kind of, uh, let's see, fall of 18, um, and really have been going hard as, you know, the person I always knew I should be, given the freedom and the financial kind of uh, independence and um, religious independence that I'm able to have. I, I'm aware that's a privilege. Um, I've been very lucky um, and that's kind of part of the visibility piece and giving back that is not everyone has had the opportunity to, in the past three years, go hard <laughs> and just kind of go for that, you know, per, um, actualization, you know, goal and, and be that person. Um, but yeah, I, it's so interesting. It feels the past three years have been a blur and it's all of a sudden just self-actualization. Um, Mm -hmm. not knowing there was like countless therapy, like there was a full year of therapy before I even, you know, started the process. And as I think people might want to say, Oh, that's gatekeepy. It's a yes. And right. It's gatekeepy, but I needed that year. (laughs) Um, Everyone can use the therapy regardless of what oh they're going God. through. So, uh, no, I think mm. I think that's amazing. I met you in 2016, so you uh, maybe looked a little different, had a different name. P.S. How did you choose? And how did you choose your name? <laughs> uh, that was like one of my cutting questions here. Uh, Let's like, pick your new name. How did you go about choosing Cordelia? So I. So it's funny. I get a lot of different things. Um, I'll tell you what I get and then I'll tell you how I chose it because people okay. assume like, oh, it's a pop culture thing. Like, oh, there's like older, typically it's from guys. Girls were like, oh, that's so cute. There's no You mean you question. had some mansplaining? Tell me. Uh, I did. That. It was so great. <laughs> um, so uh, older guys, probably like boomers or older. It's like, oh my gosh, you're, is that a King Lear reference or are you a Shakespeare fan? It was the name of King Lear's daughter. And I was like, are you, are you a princess? And I'm like, that's literary and that makes you sound smart, but let's keep moving. <laughs> uh, I was like, thank you. So sweet. Bye-bye. Um, from like people my age, I get Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, from the youngins, I get uh, American Horror Story. Right. So, so I think, uh, think pop culture and culture I and media do. has influenced you. Any kind of media, books and yeah. TV. Yeah. No. Uh, honestly, I um, my family for a time was very involved in ancestry, uh, and I went on a little journey uh, back through my tra- my you know family trees and found Cordelia quite a ways back, and was like, oh, that that feels good. Um, it's interesting because I have such a connection with my family, even though I'm really not allowed to in the current kind of sense of the way. So um, me and my family just kind of mutually estranged over the past couple of months. Um, and so, yeah, that's been a really interesting journey, kind of structuring this transition to make an impact them less, but also be authentic in, in what's needed for me. Um, so yeah, that's Cordelia. Tying back to your roots is interesting. And um 
I sometimes like estrangement from family is a good thing. Uh, people are separated from them for different reasons. Some of us choose just to live physically away from them for love them, but space is needed for other reasons. So, um, how is how has that been in um, what you've done? Because you've done so many things personally and professionally over the last few years. Um, have they been? If they've not been there for you, who is that adopted family you've taken on and brought in? Yeah. yeah. I've been so lucky to have some amazing chosen family, um, whether that's been from uh, the past institution I was at where I kind of learned more about myself by meeting another trans person. I feel like most people, that is the gateway. Mm -hmm. Um, Being like, oh, that's, oh, that's what that was. I understand now. (laughs) Thank you, meeting someone like you. Mm -hmm. Um, To people at work, I have a great um, kind of work adjacent folks. I have people outside of work. Um, people that I've carried with me from past jobs who oddly enough are in the same geographical area still. And mm-hmm. um, I've been immensely lucky. My little brother, um, my phys- my blood little brother, physical little brother, um, he's been great. He's a great support system. So it's been, it's been awesome. And, you know, I was doing so great. So a year of therapy to get over this, you know, like there, there may be this estrangement full year. Then Zoe's playlist comes on. Mm-hmm. One night of Zoe's playlist wrecks six months of therapy. <laughs> uh, explain to our listeners what Zoe's playlist is, the TV show. Um, I'm, I'm aware. <laughs> Tell them what it is, essentially. Yeah. So Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. I say Zoe's Playlist because that's the, the hashtag and it's a less of a mouthful. Um, basically, it's this um, Glee-esque kind of show where this girl develops superpowers where she can hear the inner thoughts of others through song. And I don't want to give spoilers, but um, her father has a congenital disease and he's nearing the end. And there was a very poignant emotional moment this past week. And it was like, I feel so bad for my neighbors because I'm a very open, emotional person. Like I'm okay with crying, whatever, you know, it's who we are. We should be open about that. Um, And so there was like loud sobbing. (laughs) I'm surprised I didn't get like a health and wellness from my RA. And I was like, "Uh, are you you okay in there? Be like, just Zoe's playlist. I'm fine. I'm good. It's very a musical show. I've only seen one or two episodes just because I'm trying to limit my media intake in general. Uh, But it's very musical, bust out in song, which like if you are a musical kind of person, uh, whether you love to sing or you like shows and general music, you're like, if you think it's song, it's your, it's your kind of show, I think. It's, it's, it's a more adult, mm-hmm. um, authentic, I hate to keep dropping the A word, but like a more adult authentically. So it's like adding song in a way where it doesn't feel like weird and cheap and don't get me wrong. Cheese, it's not cheesy as. Yeah. Okay. okay. I loved Glee. Don't okay. get me wrong. I, I was a fan <laughs> during my younger, more impressionable years. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it feels more like real. Well, thinking about, um, you are making an impression and we are, and I'd be apropos not to say we're talking the week, the day after a transgender day of visibility. And I don't know if any of my listeners or people out there even know what that is. It's March 31st. Um, I really think that you continue to share out whether it's any kind of emotion, um, online and with colleagues and friends, um, a little bit about what you do. And I think that's amazing because, I would say you're correct. Most people don't know um, that that even happened, that there's many communities online of support, uh, many, many hashtags and and sharing that are out there. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about um, what your experience is now that you've kind of 
you're, no one's ever through things. We're still experiencing it, right? But now that you've kind of spent a couple of years, you know, working things out, continue to work things out. Um, how did you, how was this day for you this week? I, I would say it was a little worried being self-quarantined. Right. <laughs> um, I think it's, I would say for the most part, my um, trans community that I look to for support and that I interact with are mostly online. So that doesn't really negatively impact me. Um, if I was probably in the larger city or like near, you know, and had those in-person resources, but no, it's a little bit different. I got to connect to everyone I wanted to connect to. Um, you know, and, and visibility is a, a person's own journey. Um, there was a great TED talk by Hari Neff, who is a trans celebrity um, and kind of, I don't want to say intellectual. I consider her to be an intellectual um, uh, tastemaker. I don't know if that's a better. Anyway, sure. she's multifaceted. She did a TED talk uh, around freeing the femme and around how um, we criticize trans people for either falling too far into the binary or not enough. Hmm. Um, and so whether it's, oh my gosh, you're, you're just falling way into much of what's stereotypically female or what's stereotypically what women do. And you're, you're being a, um, uh, a mockery of that, or it's like, oh, you should really like do stuff to not be such a eyesore. You need to do stuff to fall online. So it's like a either or. And so, her premise was is that um, visibility um, is a choice and oftentimes it's around safety. Um, and so because I'm safe, mostly because I can go into, into the world and not be immediately criticized, I have that power, so therefore I should. So other people can eventually. Yeah, and you're talking about two different things as terms of like – we all do live on a spectrum of a lot of things. It's not yeah. a this or that. And we all do have points of privilege, right? So the, the two things I think that really resonates for me, and I, I wonder, um, as we appear in the world, people make assumptions all the time. And they make, uh, we, and this is how, what, how we've survived many years by putting people into categories, which drives me bananas. Uh, because you're not always in just one area or one box. So um, I think of activities and say, when people ask, like, where do you fall towards, um, it was a really good diversity activity that happened in President's life that reminded me of this, but where do you fall in terms of um, female, male? And some people automatically mm -hmm. jump to one box or the other. And I, and like, I remember going like, mm, I'm kind of like over here a little bit. Like when I was given the option to say there's a spectrum in a line or yeah. choose to disclose, I was like, we never give people that option um, in the real world, meaning in our societal worlds where we mm -hmm. used to walk those long ago days in January. Um, <laughs> what was that? Tell me. Tell me, Elder. Was, what was it like it to be in public? In January 2020. It was a magical thing. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think about that all the time is how we show up could be so different of the clothing that we wear, the mm -hmm. style of things, how we brush our hair when we brush it like there's some things that um you can't change and you've said that well is you have some, you have some options to blend in but then some people don't or or don't, don't want, want to. to yeah exactly i it blows my mind I, it's 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 like um once you know things you can't unknow them i feel like to me that's kind of the crux of diversity and inclusion work is once you know better i can't remember was it 
Maya Angelou who said, once you know better, do better. I hope someone will have to we'll cite. Put so- we'll, we'll put something in there once we fact check this. Done. Yeah. Cite Done. that. Another citation. Um, yeah. Once you know better, you do better. But it's once you know something about yourself, you can't un, you know, toot that horn. You can't unknow things about yourself and the way with other people. Once you know a person who inhabits an identity that you enjoy and appreciate and see value in, it's hard to unring the bell for like, oh, like everyone could have this opportunity to be, you know, valued <laughs> once you kind of unring that bell. So once you ring that bell, rather. Um. I was going to ask you a little bit. So you've did this during like working professionally. So you were like in grad school and probably an early career professional and then moved to a different school as well. Did your transition and your own kind of self evolution essentially have any impact on that? Or like, were you afraid of um, being you or I don't know, like it's kind of, you're at some scary times in life of new things, new (laughs) beginnings of self work, grad school, um, were you ever concerned about that or like, how did you think about that? Yeah. I think it's, so I'll be honest. I don't know if I knew, knew. So, I mean, I think there are, there are inside jokes and community understandings, the way we understand transness. I would say I didn't know now uh, until I got to South Carolina and I, and I met my friend who was also trans who kind of opened my eyes being like, Oh, that's what that feeling was. That's what that, um, that deepness, that longing, that incompleteness was. And so once I was there, I realized very quickly, you can't transition at the University of South Carolina um, with help. And I'm in um, student affairs, student services, so I didn't have the unlimited budget to go pour the thousands of dollars (laughs) um, it was going to take to achieve the gender, the gender identity I felt comfortable in, in presentation, and feeling, you know, removing dysphoria or the feeling of um, feeling disgusted in your own body, um, and so, and it, it was funny, like living to just live, and then once you realize and you start that process, you're like, oh, I can be happy and live. Like this is this is the American dream. Um, was yeah, that and was so, that situational to South Carolina, or was there like an example that you could think of that you're like, oh, uh, this just gosh. doesn't feel good to me. Yeah. So I think, um, I think about the time when I kind of rang that bell for myself. Um, so I mean, just in terms of it not being strategic, I couldn't physically do it there. Um, so for example, it was not covered in the insurance at all. Um, I, I even had a friend who had to have her, uh, yearly pap smear and realized she had to pay 500 bucks out of pocket for it. And this was on state insurance state insurance and I was like well they're not going to give this you know nice <laughs> straight lady white straight lady her you know healthcare. I'm screwed um but I mean in terms of general of um I feel like you know there's a piece of you that's inside of you but you never thought it was possible or never knew a way of expressing it until and I hate to use the analogy of ringing the bell but once the bell was ringing you're like oh god this is an opportunity now I have to do whatever I can to make it happen or and lots of people don't have that opportunity i'm single i'm moderately socially mobile i'm educated i can just go so i picked up and went to university of michigan where they had benefits where i could transition sure yeah moved there for that specific reason 
And you have to think about that these days, um, especially in America, uh, healthcare is not cheap and paying for things out of pocket, uh, even covered is really expensive. And so I can only imagine um, the cost of everything you've said. So you've mentioned therapy already. Um, if there's uh, any sort of estrogen or drugs or things yeah. like that, um, you have to take care of. If there's anything else surgically like that just, I cannot imagine those bills. Um, and I tell people all the time, like people make jokes around like, and not mean jokes, but lighthearted jokes around like, oh, you look so much like a woman. Well, I, being in America, being a woman is expensive. Tell Women's clothes are more expensive. Women, makeup's more, I went a full summer without wearing makeup because I was like, I just, it's too hot. It's going to melt off. It's not economic. Like I can't keep paying. Like I would spend, and I was less of a novice at the time. So I spent probably an exorbitant amount of money to like supply myself and then realize like, I don't need all this shit. So it was very much a, a growth process for me. Um, but I, I would, I was going to tell you about in terms of my next job was probably the most intense. So they had insurance. It was diversity central, diversity inclusion central, very much an espoused value. Uh, the second I transitioned I just learned what misogyny was instantaneously, never before in my life. As a gay man prior, I probably dished out a lot. So it was kind of recompense, just the nature of, I feel like um, societally gay men operate. There's a lot of misogyny in that space. Um, but instantaneously, like I was invited to meetings. I got disinvited immediately. I was meeting with like deans, associate deans, not a peep from those people after being in meetings with folks forever. Um, and eventually kind of, yeah, the supervision, supervision got weird and canceling one-on-ones and yeah, I was, which I was lucky. I was smart. Always talk to your HR person. If there's a thing at work, always, that's the biggest tip. Talk to your HR person. And then, yeah, I had to leave because it just got unbearable. So you've discovered two things. One, the pink tax, uh, that women face of, beauty aesthetics and just being in the world welcome i buy man i buy men's razors um two um if i choose to shave uh two um i also um think i i wonder and worry about that diversity piece at your campus uh, we won't name the campus uh but uh, i wonder what it means uh is it a misogynistic thing or is it a fear or the unknown thing and that's something that like i don't know if you could ever answer that either but i yeah. Um, I'm sure it's a mix. Yeah. I think it would have to be a mix. I mean, I think it, it, for, for context, I'm a context queen. Please, for context, please. it was a STEM, it was, it was STEM adjacent. So, I mean, there, it, I think a lot of academic disciplines, there is a farther jump yeah. to maybe, um, acceptance than maybe, maybe liberal arts. Maybe that's a poor assumption. Um, but when you have mostly white men, Right. You know, I mean, I, I thought about it a lot. I think massage might've made me feel better. <laughs> as opposed to sorry, the sorry to bring you them. down in a bit. Um, no, I think you're, <laughs> no, you're probably I'm not just wrong. Um, you're probably, it's, yeah, for science, technology, engineering, math, it is male heavy. And we've talked about that in this pod with other guests have brought that up. I will say it's uh, when you're in a stereotypical field or discipline, it's hard to find, uh, people who don't connect if you aren't talking about like that one thing, like the discipline and they don't want to deal with all the other <laughs> human. And that's factors. a good point. Like, no, that is illustrated. Like, I don't think my boss was transphobic. 
my identity was a burden to her doing her job to yeah. being efficient. It, it doesn't make that not transphobic, but it wasn't like outwardly. I don't like trans people. She said all the right things. She never was rude, but it was like this. <laughs> she this. did a, I can't deal with this situation. Yeah. I, I mean, she you. didn't say, I know that was me illustrating apologies. <laughs> she didn't do that. Uh, but it was like this, what you are is too much. Like just do it. And I also think it's hard for like faculty who've never been trained to supervise professional staff. And you throw in something like that, a major life occurrence, and it's like, mm, just. Yeah, like, pro tip, most uh, management in higher ed have never managed or know how to manage or lead. Um, and they're not trained on doing that. Uh, no. no. And, that's, and this is, um, I think you make a good point of, um, it is, I think, transgender conversation topics and issues are coming to the forefront of society and have, and I don't want to thank the celebrities or the shows, but it's brought to a bigger American conversation, at least that I've seen when living here, um, for good or for bad. Um, some people are still very uncomfortable and ignorant and stupid. Um, but do you feel like there is some hope that we can continue to push some of this and have a, have a real conversation about stuff or ask, like, I don't know, do people feel like um, you don't have to be the spokesperson for any one group or identity, but do you think, do you have hope down the road for this or where we're going? I mean, yes, and I mean, no one thought, I mean, at least I didn't think gay marriage is going to happen when it happened. True. I, I was blown out of the water. I was like, what? We get this? This is happening? <laughs> what? No. <laughs> I mean, it was unprecedented. The other best word of the week, I've heard that word so many times. But yeah, I mean, it's just nuts. Like, do I think that, um, oh, what's the big congressional act that's supposed to protect us all? <laughs> What is it? The one that they're never going to pass. Um, I fear yeah, a like, Handmaid's Tale is still happening. Oh my gosh. You know, I say this and I, and I don't want to make light of it, but the only blessing of Handmaid's Tale was to know I would have been dead before it started. Oh God. <laughs> not is, to, this is no. where self-isolation has put us, folks. Not to be dark, but Darkness. watching Handmaid's Tale, I wouldn't have, that's the only blessing is people like me would have been dead already. That's why we're not on the show. We would have been, you know, purged by then. I thank you, Margaret Ackwood, for writing that and your and your pre your post book because I think um, it it brings into question of what people think are norms are okay and mm -hmm. the word uh norm and normal are being used and tossed around a lot in the Rona yeah. era. And I was like, this is the new normal. I'm like who the fuck defines this norm or normal and uh, right. how or why? And so I, I hope that we continue to question um, a lot of what we think is the status quo and maybe I don't want to put more darkness on like this crappy self-quarantine we're on now, but maybe there's some hope on the horizon for how people live and work and could work. Um, Cause yeah, it's it boggles my mind to think how well we have adjusted to this. I mean, as much technology as we have, and it's been this seamless, I really thought the world was going to end. I really <laughs> did. I was like, all these people, they're not going to make this happen. The world's going to be chaos. No one's going to work from home. It's just, but in my very small sphere, in my very small bubble, it appears people are like doing okay. And I love that. <laughs> I, I just love that you're I'm surprised. So low. You're like, humanity, <laughs> we're going to bomb this. Look at that. We're doing <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think mean, that, that's something you have to know about me. I go, I go from the bottom and anything <laughs> above that is gravy. I'm just hoping for like lower handmaiden's tail. And if we can get to like better than that, I'm good. <laughs> well, there uh, we how, go. do you, how do you Margaret, stay safe? Margaret Atwood, I know you're still writing. So if you hear this, then um, yeah, well, we have on. ideas. We, we have ideas. We'd love to talk. That's good. Yes. Um, what are some ways that you kind of supported yourself along the way? And you talked a little bit about like online community, because I think that's mm-hmm. a great space to go if you are uh, one of none around you for anywhere, any affinity mm-hmm. or identity group. Um, what are some other things that kind of supported you that you would recommend if we have any listeners that um, themselves are dealing with identity of any kind? Uh, like what mm-hmm. would you think of, that you would recommend to them that you kind of found helpful or that guides you along the way? Um, I definitely think online communities, um, if you're, if you're tech accessible, maybe that's the word. Um, I mean, as much people make fun of it, the Reddit, the Reddit answered lots of questions early on the transition, connects me with a lot of folks, provide me with a lot of information. Um, I do a game. I do the Xbox. So I have a great community, a s- super supportive community. Um, what's so funny is people I've never met have been more supportive than some of the people I know in real life. It's nutty to me. Um, I play online with a guy from Australia and I told him, he was like, good for you. <laughs> and it was like, it just, he didn't slip up with names. He didn't slip up with, pro- it was just like a, Okay, and when this is life now, so it's just regardless of your identity, and I think certain identities may tend to go to different spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can't find it online, the communities, I, and and that's one thing I don't think we talk with higher ed professionals enough is the job is one thing. Like you want to be salaried, you want to be paid, sure. <laughs> but also like s- schedule your job search and structure your job search around where the where is so important if for example i have a a trans uh, woman of color friend um who decided to move to iowa for graduate school um choices and we were talking and we were like so you none of you feels affirmed there at all like none of it her blackness her transness none of it and she's living in the closet and she's miserable and i'm like girl what can we do for you like what (laughs) but those are some things we don't often think about because we're pushed in ways because of circumstance or pushed in ways because like what we need to do what we have to do and if you have a choice go to where you're loved (laughs) instead of iowa not that you know i'm sure Iowa's great i have no lived experience in iowa but yeah, I would say you're right, though. Like, I think more than not, um, I I hope that other, I don't know, I think other places of work do this really well. And in higher ed, you can't really because they're geographically bound always, right? So you mm-hmm. have to go to the place. And a lot of these, for what I've experienced in the U.S., a lot of colleges and universities tend to be in small towns, middle of nowhere. Yes. Um, there are some urban campuses and schools and cities with uh, universities, but it's very expensive. And if you're a new professional, you might move yeah. to a small place in Ohio or like who knows where, and you may not have a community. Um, um, I don't identify as much that I didn't think it was a big, like I never thought about things in my identity that were weird until I went there. And you should learn that about you first. I think you yeah. made a good point of you never know what you have until you leave. And then if you're looking for a new role or position or career search, I think it's really, um, 
important to know like what else is out there to support you and where you fit in and where you belong. And you could find community in places, but sometimes you really got to dig and find it. So I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, I never expect going to an institution. Luckily I'm at my current institution right now for the next five or six years. So I'm set, (laughs) but like not leave it. It's free. Um, But like other folks, like I just think about like, if you have the opportunity, try to find, I mean, never anticipate institutions going to give you what you need to feel included. And I hate to say that, but I mean, it's a capitalistic enterprise. They can say they're diverse. They they can say they're inclusive, but at the end of the day, they recruit and they have the same biases any other corporation has. (laughs) And so you have to go out and find it yourself, whether it's scrounging up in the city or finding it online. Like it would be nice if it was their job to find inclusion for you, but it's not always there. I think what you're saying is culture. Like you're talking about a company culture, like institutions, higher ed needs to have one of those as well. And and every institution is different. Um, Find the right culture and environment because you can still find, yeah, inclusive and diverse spaces, but even supportive people that are just going to be open. Like, are they open? Are they willing to talk to you about it? Like, uh, are they willing to ask you stupid questions? Like I'll ask you, Um, like, are they willing to have a conversation? Like that's it. Yeah. I mean, and that's the point, right? Is there's a lot of different frames of thought around this. I don't think there are stupid questions. I get yelled at a lot. I I don't think there's such thing as stupid questions. I think they're like ill-intentioned questions, rude questions, poorly asked questions. But I think when you start thinking of questioning in general as the enemy... I feel like that's where we get to to a scary space. Like I don't I don't care if anyone asks me a question about who I am as a person and how I live my life. It's is it asked from an educated space or a space of wanting to be educated, or is it asking me from a space of trying to pull one up on me or like right. put me in my place? You know, it's all about intention and right. and place that's being asked from, in my opinion. Yeah, you want to know that people asking you questions actually care and are. Being, right. being jerks about it and I don't like I can only imagine the dumb questions you've gotten so um do you have a best stupid question or I don't know it's not safe for work no I'm kidding no, I... <laughs> the question was probably not safe for work either, either. no I, I, neither of it is um no I think it's funny like not all trans people need medicalization not all trans people want medicalization but for those of us who do it's an important part of our lives and I think we don't want it to be what people care about us. We don't want that to be the point of interest. Right. Uh, we want people to see as humans, but I think me being realistic, I understand that if I looked a specific way three years ago and now I look like a completely different human being, there's going to be questions about how I got there. Sure. Um, and that's human and that's real. I think what's unfortunate is the society's obsession with my medicalization specifically the surgical bit you know it's like would you ask sally joe barnacle off the street what you got in your pants no like that's just not normal human behavior it's weird Um, that people are obsessed with people's bits and then their life in the bedroom i was like listen if people ask about your boring life in the bedroom they won't but yeah (laughs) no i think stuff like that um is really dumas those are dumb 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 questions um so there are dumb questions but i would say um the obsession about the female identity and i I can only imagine what you've been reading and uh, and what you get into um because i i think there's assumptions about women all the time uh so welcome to 
the, the club. I was like, I, I should have got this intro book three years ago. Where were you when I needed yeah. this intro book? Yeah, oh, no, welcome, welcome to the club. Uh, there's some good things, some really shitty things. Uh, we get to have it all. Uh, but I, I think it's stuff that you have an interesting lens on being from different contexts, male, uh, gay men, uh, white, female, uh, sassiest person ever now. Like, so I feel like you have so many different cool lenses to go, this was different when this was happened or in this situation, mm-hmm. I've never had someone say that to me before. Does that make me a woman? Like, is, have you had those, any of those recently that you're like, hmm. I feel, and I talked about this in my therapist. She's going to be like, you're just giving away all your secrets. Um, the, <laughs> I, I, what I'm going to say is controversial, but in Good. the best of ways. Um, I, there was a period where I mourned a loss of privilege. I think that a gay man doesn't have all the privilege by any form of fashion, but a gay white male has a lot more privilege than a lot of other folks do, mm-hmm. especially being socially mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a lot of privilege. I never got told no at a job interview. I got every job I ever applied for. I was turning down jobs. I was living my best life in a way. <laughs> um, and then the second you know, I started presenting as female or I told folks I was trans because when you're living without proper documentation, it's, you ha- an, it's an awkward tell, right? Because they're like, oh, we were expecting this person and this is like, and then it's just like, this is who I am. This is why my papers don't make sense. Please call me this if you don't let me know and I won't interview with you. Yeah, Simple, right? Um, and so for me, there was a period of like mourning that loss of privilege the fact that I'm moderately terrified to walk home by myself in the dead of night from the Metro never would have thought about that before. But now I'm looking over my shoulder for five seconds being a super villain in public. Like what if, what if the drunk frat boy from down the street makes a pass and figures out I don't have what he's looking for. Am I dead? Like thinking about those things is terrifying. And then, being like thinking about that privilege of not having to think about that before. Um, and you know, there's this, I spend way too much time on Twitter, which I'm sure you can see. You're like, oh, Listen, I, this is not an intervention for social media or Twitter, but yet. Okay, um, thank you. Cause yeah. when it is, let me know. I'll balance out real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go. Bye. I have to go wash my hair. Um, but but yeah. that has so much complexity though. Cause you're right. Yeah. Like I, uh, you know, we're really naive and young. You don't really think of it this, but you're like, I'm walking down the street. It's dark parking lot. What's if something happened, what would I do? And then you're like, there's another complex. Like, what if they discover who I am and this shit goes bad? Like you really have to yeah. think about that. That's so layered and complicated. And so I can only imagine, um, but you're, you are making like strong points of saying like, we always assume um, what we are by what we look like, right? And that mm-hmm. it matters. And it matters more than it should. So when you talked about yeah. applying for jobs, go, this is an area of interest of mine because I work with a lot of professionals that are doing career transitions. People really, one of the biggest identify, identifying selves is their job and role. So what happens when you put the two transgender and work life together? Um, mm-hmm. what happens to those career planning or journeys as well? Cause it's like a double journey. Like yeah. I got to figure out what the hell I'm doing with my life work-wise. Then I'm like, what about me as a person? So how does that work? I, I mean, give a quick preface. So I feel like, especially in our community lately, uh, it's very much about, I just want to say this is my personally lived experience. It may yeah, not be yeah. other people's, but I just, yeah. you know, 
doing it, do it for the peeps on Twitter when this gets out there and I'm dragged and ceremoniously. No, no, I would kidding. say, tell me about your experience. Yeah. I feel like yeah, yeah. Lot, it's a parallel journey, but <sighs> they converge or does that, how does that happen? Yeah, I, I feel there's a lot of like overthinking. There's a lot of strategizing. I've never had to strategize the way I have job searching in the transition. So after I lost my job to that discrimination issue, I was unemployed for eight months. Wow. So not only did I have to balance finding a place that had insurance, who would allow me to transition on the job, I had to worry about was it was I qualified? Was I prepared? Mm-hmm. Um, could I afford to live there? Um, could I do the job because before <laughs> as a gay man, I was literally getting jobs. I was not qualified for the one I got, the one that I got discriminated at. I was not prepared for that job and I got it anyway. And I like that you're so, admitting this now, but yes. Go oh on. my God. I was <laughs> dragging the dudes. Um, but no, seriously, like I was not qualified for the job. Nothing about re- my resume said here. You can be a higher level faculties data monkey like nothing about my role said like I could handle this work I had no academic experience um but I got it (laughs) so I mean then I had to start applying for jobs that maybe I was underqualified for um my current job I'm I before I got my promotion you know I was super I'm still kind of underqualified I mean I'm seven plus years in and I'm at a assistant director level um I mean, that's partially an issue with the way assessment works. Like you have to have a PhD to be a director these days, apparently. Um, But yeah, I mean, I came in as a coordinator, seven plus year professional. uh, And that was like one of the few jobs I could find where I could get a job. Uh, Applied for lots of hall director roles just because I needed a space. I needed flexibility in my life to transition. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I thought it would be an asset in those spaces like having a openly trans person in your halls like there as a resource and visibility didn't work out that way um but yeah it's just you have to think about a thousand different things and trying to make a puzzle go together and then hoping you get lucky hoping someone takes pity on you i'm just kidding but in all essence takes pity on you and it's like oh you're competent and you can do the job you know I, I felt so lucky where I got my job, where I'm at now. I, it was like a perfect storm. Yeah, I will say on our podcast, we've talked about biases for women and job hiring in general. Like, forget mm-hmm. like trans, being transgender. So I can, I can't talk to that, but I know we have so many um, biases and implicit biases with how we hire, and it's always about the person, and that's, they just look at charisma, personality. I was like, no, what can they actually do? We don't actually hire that way until I applied for my current job. I've never had a really good job um, application or um, hiring experience because no one's actually asked or tested or understood what I can do and my situational experiences, what I have done. And um, you're right. So I can't imagine that bias. Plus you applied before you changed your name legally. Yeah. (laughs) They have to to find out about you. Like you could be Cordelia on your resume, but you couldn't when you had to go through like give me your identification and go through HR and all that stuff. So flying was nutty. Flying flying is still nutty. But <laughs> going out to a job interview, I mean, luckily I had really short androgynous hair and I could just like not shave for like a couple of days and like roll through the airport and be fine. But like it was it was a journey. <laughs> Well, then you're still like hiding though. You're trying to yeah. mask who you really are. And that's not, that's your, you may be your best self, but you're not your whole best self. So that's kind exactly. of shitty. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, the things I could tell you about operating without correct identification, <laughs> I could write a book, and I may, when I have more free time outside of the PhD, maybe, but living yeah. a world without, and, you know, there are so many great intersectional stories to tell around the undocumented experience, you know, not having the correct documents, being in constant fear that someone is going to stop you and ask, like, you know, what's your, like, let me see... In a, in a very much different way, obviously. Like, mine, just some personal embarrassment. There's, you know, literally deportation or worse. So, um, but some shared experience there for sure. And so for our non-American listeners to the podcast, I will say EEO is a thing that categorizes us when you are applying for jobs. You have to answer a series of questions or elect not to about uh, your background, whether it's your ethnicity, where you're from, if you were a veteran, things like that. And some of those aren't really helpful for those who don't have the classification that we could check off. And it's kind of an odd thing to be, let's put you in this category here. Yeah. Well, it's, and it's, and what's stinks about equal opportunity stuff is there's no mandate for it, but it's not like that's taken out of actual consideration of hiring. It's like, Oh, we did all the work to make sure the pool was diverse. We're still going to hire Billy Joe internal candidate. Who we love anyway. So me going through the, the journey of identifying myself and laying myself bare for employment at the end of the day doesn't make me any more truly competitive. Right. Yeah. I think there's some ways and practices and I know um, we kind of chatted a bit before. Is this, this is an area that I think you're going to study more of a little bit more. Yeah. Tell, I, I feel... about that. Yeah. This is because I've got a lot of issues with hiring practices in a lot of places. So yes, go on. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's so funny. In my recent class, we talked about research is therapy and you kind of tend to like research trauma or <laughs> things that have happened to you are important to you. And sure. so, um, yeah, I really want to focus on trans employment specifically in higher education from a policy lens. Cool. So thinking about top to bottom federal uh, institutional state uh, policies and how they impact the hiring and retention of trans folks in higher education. Um, I know I talked too early about this, but like I really want to get uh, more specifically international uh, context around that as well. I have so many inter- international friends who are also trans and the UK is, a, it's a scary time to be trans over there. Like, I feel like it's a scary time here to be trans in the United States, but my UK sisters are literally going through it over there. It's terrifying. Like I can't imagine. Um, I'm actually going to, to London for Christmas and I'm going to get to see a couple of them. And hopefully if Corona willing, <laughs> I get to go. Gosh, yes. I'm terrified because I mean, it's, I would love to compare maybe an ideal, like an ideal dissertation. I would love to do um, Australia, the UK and the US and really kind of break it down into a case study and kind of think about what is that top to bottom? What does that look like? And what, how does it impact those at the bottom who are going through these experiences? I think that's a great story that often doesn't get told for trans folks that are applying for jobs and looking for jobs and work in higher ed. Yeah, however you decide to study it, I want to keep following along. I'd be curious to know um, how folks that are looking for employment in different spots, and if it's higher ed, I wonder if you go beyond higher ed, I'll encourage you to do that. That's my challenge to you. Um, What does it mean for transgender folks to um, think about the needs, the necessity? Because I think it would give great practices for many organizations that aren't considering that. Um, so if anyone is studying this out there in other fields or disciplines or domains, uh, I think Cordelia would love to hear from you. And so, yeah. And I, and I, and the thought is, is I don't know. Once I, I feel like PhD is the gateway to like 
actual career fulfillment. Um, and I'll get to do like whatever I want at that space. I'll have a little bit more mobility, you know, I'll be stuck in the higher ed or student affairs frame. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to get into like the policy realm and think about employment policy as a whole. Um, so that's the hope, Megan, to think tank at the end of these six grueling years. Well, I think you're not alone. I would say friends in human resources or human resource mm-hmm. management development would be interested in this. Folks in, yeah, like you said, policy, sociology. Like I can only imagine yeah. there's other disciplines that would be really interested in if they're not already studying it. Then um, I look forward to learning about your lit review. So please, please yeah. tweet that one out loud. That's that'd be great. I'll, I'll tweet a secret draft for you, just like yes. at you with like a little locked Google Doc. Sweet, sweet. I can't wait. Um, all right. Um, we have some typical questions we ask a lot of our guests. And sure. we, sh- thank, we thank you so much for sharing all, already a lot um, of what's been going on in your world and life and times of work. And I want to know if there's, um, since it is about story and you're a fan of story, if there's any story or narrative or things that have gotten you lately that uh, you want to share. And that could be TV, books, film, I don't know. What's what's keeping you busy during the Rona when you're not working or researching? Um, I wish I've had time to read in a minute. So uh, due to that amazing religious trauma I talked about earlier, I've been really into astral- astrology lately, mm-hmm. uh, all about it, getting on the, all the apps, learning about my charts, doing everything I can. Okay, okay. I'm so what very, you- very invested. Really? So what have you learned? Yeah. Is there anything... I mean, I, so here's what's funny about astrology, regardless of where you fall in the, do we believe it? Do we not believe it? Am mm-hmm. I a scientist? Is this too much spectrum? Um, I, I feel like stuff like that only works if you believe in it. Okay. Uh, and I, I feel like there's a little bit of like um, response bias, a little bit like involved in like reading about it and like, oh my God, I felt that. Like, that's so me. Like, how did it look at me that deeply inside? Um but I've learned a lot about like uh, dating practices, okay. what type of folks I'm into, why I'm into those folks. Learned a lot about like, it, it's a weird, it's, it's like a personal development strategy. It's like strengths, to be honest. Right, right. It's like a really fun astronomy-based strengths. So it's kind of like you're taking any personality or interest inventory or yeah. strengths inventory, but you're applying it to yeah. uh, where your zodiac sign falls. Yeah. And that's essentially it's, it. Okay. Yeah. It's one of those weird other interests. So like, uh, and I've also picked up d and I've become a massive D&D fan. Like it's popular. Explain, explain the acronym. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, D&D is Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it's a uh, role-playing game, a fantasy role-playing game. Um, yeah, glasses, being a nerd is cool, and I'm embracing my nerdness in a way I couldn't in my childhood, so look out. <laughs> Nerds, she's coming for you. Exactly. Um, it's, it's our best time for us. The one thing I'll say about, so I used to follow a lot more astrology. There was a book that came out from, do you know Chani Nicholas? <gasps> I have that book. I'm in the middle of reading it. It's fantastic. Okay. So I'll share the book. It's, you were born for this, Astrology yeah. for Radical Self-Acceptance and Living Your Purpose. So I was, I was wondering if that's what you were reading. Cause I was like, oh, I listened to a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her. It's like over there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, the, she has like a free kind of self-assessment on her website that I'll put in the show notes. Ooh, you know about this? Fun. Uh, so I haven't done that yet. Okay. I've just been kind of like, I, I have my own, like, it's weird. I have my own place where I have my readings and yeah, I've yeah. just been using it for like work 
working on the stuff, but very interested for sure. Yeah, no, if you're, you should definitely read the book. I think uh, this is like a quick snapshot in a way to get people drawn in to probably get the mm-hmm. book. But um, it seems very fascinating. So I'll put a link to that book in the uh, show notes. So you are reading a book. So what are you talking about? You're not reading. I mean, I, yes, there's still a practical element to it. <laughs> and uh, not completely for pleasure. That's fine. That's totally fine. You're allowed to do that. Um, is there anything uh, that you're enjoying as far as, far as beverage? It doesn't have to be wine. Um, that you want to sit back, kick back with these days? Um, I mean, I, I'm a lover of the rosé. Mm. I do love rosé. I like a bottle, like a canned. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which one uh, do you like? Um, oh, my gosh. It's hard. So I'm in rural Virginia um, Mm -hmm. with no car and I have to Instacart it. So I've been kind of on a moratorium with alcohol, Um, (laughs) but I like it. It's like canned and carbonated. It's super delicious. Uh, We talked about this. We have a former episode that talked about canned and different ways that wines bottle and stuff. So it's probably one of the ones we talked about. Is it the Underwood one? No. (gasps) That's it. That's it. That's it. Is it? Okay. There's an Underwood one. Yeah. Underwood has like a Pinot Noir, but has a rosé. There was another one I liked. I'm trying to think about what it is. Uh, The rosé all day. Um, There's a couple of them. So that's, hey, those are good for the environment. You're not wasting corks. Exactly. You and are recyclable. Recycling. Yeah, that's great. Moderate portions. I'm a lightweight. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to open a full bottle. You can have yeah, a small. Exactly. I think it's great. Before we wrap up, because I asked this, and it's not just because of the Rona, um, is there something that's bringing you joy right now that's making you smile um, during these times? Well, <laughs> I am a voracious online shopper to my <laughs> bank account's disbelief. Um, I just bought a 65-inch TV because I knew I'd be here for like three months, potentially. And if I'm going to lay in my bed and binge shows, I want to do it in style. And so I can see it now. And it's beautiful. And it's 4K. And Love it. I always wanted. So now when I binge Altered Carbon for the second time, it's a great show on Netflix. <laughs> Altered Carbon? Resonant, okay. Altered Carbon, yeah. So it's basically okay. about in the future, many, many moons in the future, bodies don't matter. It's about your brain is like in a computer and it can be moved from human body to human body. And it's like a trans person's dream, right? So it's very resonant of like, you can put this little mind computer into anybody, any body you want. Interesting. It's your body then. It's very, it's very, it's very science fiction-y. It's very cute. Um, Alter carbon. Yeah. I'm going to put that on the list of to watch uh, because I think that will happen. I suspect this. If you've not watched Black Mirror, I think all of, all of those things and some of those things have happened. So same. I mean, I'm hoping, I don't know. I always hope I kick the bucket before anything weird like that happens. <laughs> I just, it sounds cool. And I love to be a voyeur of fun things, but like, I just like, Maybe I'm 90 years old and I'm just like, okay, bye everybody. Okay. It's understandable. All right. Is there anything else that you were going to binge? Are there other stories that kind of resonate with you that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. So recently I rewatched the matrix and by the Wachowskis. And if you didn't know the matrix is actually an allegory for transition. What? Um, yeah. The whole bit around like choosing which pill and how like, um, back then the estrogen pills were of that specific color. There's like whole treatises about like how it's basically, yeah, an allegory for transition as this is when they wrote it. And when they did the matrix, it was pre-transition for both Wachowski sisters. 
What? So the red pill yeah. is estrogen and the blue yeah, pill? Yeah, because that's what he took, right? Rest- estrogen used to be a red pill, like back in the day, story on the street. Is that, um, is this why, like, this goes back to Handmaid's Tale. Is that why there's red versus blue? Probably. I mean. Mm. All right. Colors uh, mean something. Um, <laughs> but they don't because little boys used to wear pink back in the day. Uh, I know. It's so weird. I just, I do what society tells me to. I'm just, like, Handmaid's <laughs> Tale, right? I want to pass right through that, like, takeover so and no. just pretend to get pregnant every so often. Um, so wait a second. I need to watch the matrix again. So tell me, is there more representation of uh, transgender in there? And how do you, like, how would you, how would you explain that to us? So uh, the allegedly what I've been told by elders and like extensive <laughs> online. So like they've admitted this, uh, but it's kind of like this kind of um, intercommunity folk tale about kind of how it came to be. So um, when Neo, Neo, his pre-life, before he realized what the world really was, okay. um, he was kind of pre-transition. Like, he was just l- going through the world unaware of who he was, unaware of what the world could be. And then as he took the pill... He was actualized of who he was. He was actualized who he was. Okay. Um, and he, sh- he became in the real world where he could be who he wanted to be and who he really was. Um, which, I, the kind of... Um, the matrix-esque ability to like change and transform and yeah 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 once he was able to control you know his abilities in the matrix he was able to like so uh, allegedly i don't know about the other two films but first one allegedly kind of this trans folk lore was that yeah it's it's basically an allegory for transition that the wachowskis wrote um, prior to their time before they transitioned. I'm going to have to rewatch The Matrix. All right, you've had yeah. a good story that I have to go back to and think about it in a different lens. Yeah, a little, little 1990-something. <laughs> when did that come out? It I'm, was probably late or mid-90s. Listen, yeah. the 90s are a time that we like to go back to, and we have time to go back to that. Uh, we, do, we do. If we go back to pandemic, we'll just regress every 20 years every month. We'll be 19, well, 1920 depression and... Week five uh, or six. I'm not going to wear varnay or slouch socks or scrunchies. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe those you know, elephant pants. Cute. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. If it if it looks good, then maybe. Okay, fine. Right. Everything's um, different on different body types, right? Just adjust your body type. So the 90s, I am a big fan of 90s music. So, all right. We're going to have to go back to some 90s movies then as well. So that's exactly. good. Good. Yeah. Thanks. Then when we turn back to this decade, we'll find there's so many shows that are streaming everywhere. So we can definitely find other things to watch that I'm sure we haven't watched or will never be able to watch in this uh, time that we're locked in. My time is precious and don't, I yeah. have to watch all the Disney shows on 4K. So we'll see what happens <laughs> in the next week or two. <laughs> well, you have your priorities ahead of you. Um, I just want to say thank you some t- for taking time out and having a chat with us. Um, and yeah. uh, we'd love for you to come back anytime. If there's sure. something else, big or small, you want to chat about, uh, we are around. And uh, we really appreciate you coming in and being a fab. And um, we'll put your links to all the socials you want to share for our listeners so they can get in touch with you. And uh, good luck with uh, what's going on all these days. We're, we'll get through these uh, troubled times, as I say. Oh, yeah. These chill, they're, they're chill yet not chill. <laughs> chill, unchill times. Yes, the chillest, the unchillest of times. <laughs> well, oh until next time, I can't wait to chat again. So uh, please don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you back anytime. So. Sounds great. Thank you so much. To catch the next episode, be sure to subscribe. 
to InVinoFab, wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab, and we'll always welcome comments and messages sent by tweet, private message, or email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.